Hey guys, this is Rick Godwin, pastor of Summit Church here in San Antonio. Thanks for joining us today. You know, we're excited to have you on our podcast. Our goal is to inspire you and to challenge you and help everyone realize their full potential in Christ. Now enjoy the message. We've been in a series and we've been talking about first, the power of hope. And we said we serve the God of all hope. There are no hopeless situations. There are no hopeless people. There are no hopeless uh, circumstances. Our God gives us hope for the future. Things can be different. And you can live without food. You can live without water. Certain period of time, but you can't live without hope. And uh, we don't need any hopeless people following Jesus. We ought to be people who express hope in every situation. Okay, secondly, we talked about the power of potential. A potential is what you could do, but you haven't done it yet. It's how far you can go, but you haven't gone there yet. It's what you could be. It's what you could do, but you haven't done it yet. Now, once you do it, it's not potential because you've already done it. It's what you could do, but you haven't done. And I look around this room, and I see tons of potential. Don't go to the grave with unused potential. There are, you know, they, I remember I was with Miles Monroe. We were preaching together in South Africa somewhere. I forget what part of the country. And I remember him saying, the cemetery is the most expensive real estate in the world because in it are unfulfilled dreams, unfulfilled visions, books that weren't written, businesses that weren't started, churches that weren't built. And I thought, we all going to die, but die empty. Live full, die empty. Don't take anything to the grave. I, would, I think it's a wonderful thing to be an organ donor, but I don't think you're going to want my organs because I'm going to use those puppies up. They won't they look at it and throw it in the trash. They know no hope here. Use up that gift and ability God's given you and your potential, and don't go to the grave until you do. Well, that was my thought on it. Then we talked last week about the power of God's Word. It's alive. It's powerful. It has healing in it. It has deliverance in it. It's, it's eternal. It's immutable. It's unfailing. It's always true. It's always the same. It never changes. Something you can build your life on. And Jesus said, if you'll build it on my words, not tradition, on my word, what I say in Scripture clear, you'll be unshakable. The storms will come. But when it's over, you're going to stand like a person that built a house on a rock, on a good foundation. Today we close and we talk about the power of the blood of the lamb, talking about Jesus. That four-legged lamb in the Old Testament was a picture of the two-legged lamb, the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So we're going to take that apart today, and I'm going to give you some doctrine. So it's not a yay, yay kind of a message, but boy, is it good news. Now, the good news of the gospel, gospel means good news. That's all. Just if gas went down to a dollar, that's the gospel. That's good news. Right? Right. I, 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 took my, I wanted to take my wife out to someplace expensive, so we went to Chevron and uh, <laughs> sat at a picnic table. <laughs> Terrible. So the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus' death on the cross, he defeated Satan on our behalf in two primary ways. Number one, he made it possible for us to obtain forgiveness of our sin. 
all past sin. Second, he made it possible for us to receive God's righteousness by faith without having to observe the law to get it. That deprives Satan of his chief weapon against us, which is guilt. Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Why not? Because Jesus took it. I deserve it, but he took my condemnation. So it's been fulfilled in him. So when the enemy comes to condemn me, I say, you can't. I've already been judged. I've already been executed in Jesus. And now I'm his righteousness. Suck it up, Satan. Nothing you can do about it. Christians are involved in a tremendous conflict that spans the whole universe from heaven to earth. And the battle is between God and the forces of good and Satan and the forces of evil. The devil's an archangel because of his pride, led a third of the angels in rebellion against God and set up a rival kingdom and God threw him out of heaven. Now the scriptures present him as a dragon, a serpent, a murderer, a liar, and a thief. Not very good credits, huh? Satan opposes God, God's purposes, and God's people. And his opposition to us has three objectives, to steal, to kill, and destroy. He never has a good thought about you. One of those three things is always working. Jesus has also put some spiritual weapons in our possession with which we can administer his victory over Satan. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are not physical or material, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So as we operate these weapons God's given to us, and we do it in faith, dependence on him, the very power of God himself becomes available to all who believe. We are not to be on the defensive, getting our brains beaten out in this battle with the enemy wondering where Satan going to hurt me next. But we're to be on the offense, moving out to attack against Satan and his fortresses and to destroy them with spiritual weapons that God's given to us. Remember that scripture, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Gates don't attack. Gates are defensive weapons. They're stationary. So if they shall not prevail against us, it implies I'm moving against the gates. So he says, I want my church moving on the offense not defense. You know, half the churches in America, quote, for we wrestle not. And that's where they stop. They don't wrestle with anything. And we're supposed to be people who have possession of weapons to defend ourselves, to fight back and, and bring victory in our lives. So we must not remain passive. Don't do that. We, we may tend to say, well, Rick, I'm so weak. I'm so unworthy. How can I fight? Well, we could all say that in the flesh. But it's the devil who puts those words in our mind. In a certain sense, humanly speaking, we are weak. However, listen to what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and things that are not to nullify the things that are. So in God's infinite wisdom, he has chosen weak and unworthy people like us to overthrow the things that are. That's Satan's kingdom. See, our confidence is not in ourself. 
It's in our weapons that Christ has given to me. So what are our spiritual weapons? Here's the passage you ought to memorize that describes them. It's in Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now has come salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accused them before our God day and night is now cast down. And they, the believers, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So the crucial statement here is this. They overcame him. You're called an overcomer. You have to overcome something to be an overcomer. And so we have an evil enemy set against us, our homes, our marriages, our health, our lives, our future, and we overcome him, and he gives us these weapons. And notice, it's a direct person-to-person conflict with believers who connect with the enemy. Their weapons in the fight were the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and in addition, they were committed to the battle, even not being afraid of death because we have eternal life. Now, I interpret that text simply and practically. We overcome Satan when we testify personally to what the Word of God says the blood of Jesus does for us. When we use these three weapons together, the blood of Jesus, the Word of God, our personal testimony, we make them effective. But to do it properly, we have to know what the Word of God says that the blood of Jesus does for us, okay? Ignorance is not bliss. So I'm reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Here's what he writes. For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. In other words, there are plenty of religions and plenty of groups that believe I can buy my way into heaven or I can perform my way into heaven, or I can pay this much and get out of purgatory, or I can be dead and buy somebody out of purgatory. The mafia believes this. They can can pay enough money into the church to get somebody out of purgatory and into heaven. And Peter just says, ain't going to happen. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. Your money won't redeem you. Your morality won't redeem you. Your good works are nice, but they won't redeem you. What can wash away my sin? Uh, nothing but the blood of Jesus, the Lamb. That's it. This is so simple. This cuts religion to the bone. See, Jesus is compared to the Passover Lamb. So under the Old Covenant, the blood of the Passover Lamb was applied to the homes of the Israelites. The father of each family killed the firstborn male lamb without blemish. He killed that Passover Lamb. Then he took the blood and collected it in a basin. And he transferred the blood from the basin to his home with a little bunch of hyssop, a a plant that looks like a paintbrush. He dipped the hyssop in the blood in the basin, then he sprinkled it on the doorpost of his home. So the hyssop was essential because the blood in a basin gave you no protection. But the blood placed on the home by the use of the hyssop protected the family. Our hyssop 
in the, first the natural, then the spiritual. Our hyssop is our testimony. When I testify about what the Bible says the blood of Jesus does for me, it's like taking the blood from a basin and sprinkling it over my life or home wherever it's needed. Now, there's redemption and forgiveness. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, Paul says, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So Paul here states two things are provided for us by the blood of Jesus, redemption and forgiveness of sins. So in order to make those provisions effective in our lives, we have to make the appropriate testimony. And this is the message of Psalms 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom God has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. So we have to declare boldly with our mouth, hey, I am redeemed from the hand of the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. See, that is, I'm delivered from Satan. To redeem means to buy back. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to buy it back. So we were sinners displayed in Satan's slave market. Jesus walked into that slave market, paid the full price, a perfect sinless life, and shed blood. He bought us back out of the enemy's possession with his own precious blood. My mother-in-law couldn't buy me back. My mom and daddy couldn't buy me back. No church could buy me back. Jesus bought me back because he's the only sinless person in the earth that shed his blood and took the judgment I deserve in my place. So he was able to redeem me back from the enemy, and that is also the basis of the forgiveness of our sins. So to make Christ's redemption and forgiveness effective in our lives, we have to use our personal testimony. Again, say, through the blood of Jesus, all my sins are forgiven. Through the blood of Jesus, I have been redeemed out of the hand of Satan. That testimony, when we make it with our own lips, is like hyssop. It transfers the power of the blood of Jesus from the realm of potential into our practical daily living. Now, yet another provision of the blood of Jesus is cleansing from sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So if we walk in the light, then the first result is fellowship with one another. The second result is that we are cleansed, being constantly cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Now, the blood of Jesus does not cleanse in the dark, but as we walk in the light. I'll show you what that means in a second. The first test of whether we're walking in the light is whether we're having fellowship with one another. See, if we're not enjoying fellowship with our fellow believers and with the Lord, we're not, we're not walking in the light. And if we're not in the light, the blood of Jesus isn't cleansing me. The next question then is how do you walk in the light? Well, the first condition is obedience to the Word of God, doing your best to obey. When you fail, you ask forgiveness. You get it. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Psalms 119 Verse 105 says, your word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. So I'm walking in the light. I'm doing my best to do what Jesus said, obey his word. The second requirement is that we must have fellowship with one another. And that's summed up by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where he says, speaking the truth in love, 
we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. So in this passage, walk in the light is defined as relating to our fellow believers in truth and in love. So we must be willing to act out the truth in our relationships with one another, but do it in love. Walking in light consists of those two actions put together. Walking in obedience to God's word, walking in truth and love with fellow believers. Now, when we meet those conditions, we can say with full assurance, the blood of Jesus is cleansing me right now of all sin. So today we're conscious of a physical pollution in our atmosphere around us, in the environment, but the spiritual atmosphere is also real, and it's polluted by sin and corruption and ungodliness, and in order to be kept clean on a daily basis, we need to be continually being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So having made sure I'm meeting the conditions for cleansing, we're in a position to make the appropriate confession our testimony, and it should be, as I walk in the light, the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing me of all sin, both now and continually. Now, if I believe that, I begin thanking God, and as we thank him, we feel pure and clean in a fresh and new way. There's another benefit to the blood of Jesus. It's called justification. That's made clear in Romans 5, verse 8 and 9. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In other words, don't forget, Jesus took the wrath you and I deserve. And the key phrase is justified by his blood. To justify means to make righteous, to acquit from sin. If a court acquits you, you're not guilty. To hold you guiltless. So the best definition of justification I've ever heard that's simple is through the blood of Jesus, I am justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Now, how can we say that? Because we are justified through the blood of Jesus. We receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own righteousness, and Jesus never sinned. So in 2 Corinthians 5, Verse 21, Paul writes, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there was an exchange on the cross. Jesus became sin with my sinfulness. He assumed the penalty and the judgment of my sin. He paid the full price of redemption by shedding his own blood. So in him, we become the righteousness of God, not our own. I can't earn it, never deserved it. It was imputed to me by faith in Jesus. So that's, how does God see you? Righteous. I don't know if my wife does, but God does. There's no human righteousness that's acceptable. But the very righteousness of God himself, God has never known sin, never been defiled with sin, and that is the righteousness we get through faith in the blood of Jesus. It is through the blood of Jesus I am justified, made righteous with God's righteousness. I become just as if I'd never sinned in his eyes. He says, your sin and iniquity I will remember no more. As far as the east is from the best, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Why do we keep adding law to trying to make God love me? He loved you while you were in sin. Holy Moses, come on. We all have a bad day. But I want to show you that it's through the blood of Jesus and nothing else that makes me acceptable to him 
and makes me a threat to the enemy. So this is the answer to Satan's accusation against us. Why is he accusing us? Because he wants to prove us guilty. Therefore, the primary testimony that overcomes Satan's accusation then is through the blood of Jesus, I am justified, made righteous, as if I never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. So for that reason, I can stand before God without shame, without fear, and I can answer Satan with total boldness. Satan, it is vain to accuse me because I am not meeting you in my righteousness. I am meeting you in the righteousness of God, which is without spot, sin, or stain. You cannot condemn me. Now, God can convict you. God can chastise you, but he will never judge you. You have already been judged in Christ. That means you can be, as I said, if, if, if one of my kids throws a base, baseball through the windshield of your car and it's $250, the judgment, and I pay it, I might take them home for a spanking. I might take them home and take them off an iPhone and an iPad, but I didn't judge them. I disciplined them or I chastised them. The judgment, I had to pay, 250 bucks. So Jesus has paid your judgment. You will never be judged. Don't ever tell your kids in misbehavior, well, God's judging you. No, he is not. I'm going to get you. <laughs> okay, a little levity there, all right. Now, the next provision of the blood of Jesus is sanctification. To sanctify means to make holy to make holy means to set something or someone apart to God. Let me pause and say, I, I don't even like the word because I know what we think when we hear the word. Oh, he thinks he's so holy. You use that word when I hear it through church people or religion as a means of performance. You know, I don't wear any makeup. I don't wear lipstick. I don't wear jewelry. I, I am extremely modest, so, and I don't do any bad things, so I'm, I'm sanctified. I'm holy. That's not what that word means, all right? A holy person is simply somebody set apart to God, to set apart. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Therefore Jesus also that, we might, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the camp. In other words, he was crucified outside the city to set apart the people that were his through his own blood. So that, let me explain this. The use of blood... For sanctification is very clear in the Passover. The blood of the Passover lamb made Israel apart from Egypt in a specific way. Let me read it. It's in Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. And this is how his, his sanctification is revealed. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will be throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of a slave girl who's working at a hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever shall be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So the Lord made a difference between those who were his people and those who were not his people. That's what sanctification means. You're set apart. 
So wrath and judgment came upon those who were not God's people, but God's people were so totally protected that not even a dog would bark against them. And the basis of that distinction was the blood of the Passover lamb. Any home that had the blood on the outside of their home was sanctified or set apart to make a difference. No evil power, no death angel could invade that home because the Lord made a difference, a distinction between his people and those who were not his people. And the distinction was made by applying the blood of the lamb. See, in that same way that we have been that we have applied the other provisions of Jesus' blood by giving an appropriate testimony, we can apply the provisions of sanctification with these words. Through the blood of Jesus, I am sanctified, made holy, set apart to God. The devil has no place in me, no power over me, no unsettled claims against me. Everything has been settled by the blood of Jesus at the cross. I don't owe anything. I want to honor the Lord. I want to bless him and please him, but I still can't perform enough to make him make myself worthy. No, it's through Jesus. That, why do you think the sinners flock to Jesus and they stay away by the millions in American churches? Because they're not hearing any good news. Jesus said, I'm going to do everything for you. I'm going to take the full judgment you deserve. The poor old, remember the old extortionist, publican, knelt down on his knees, beat his breast, and said, God, have mercy on me. And the Pharisee says, Lord, you're so lucky to have me. I'm so glad. I hadn't been drunk, hadn't committed adultery. I tithe, even give a little extra over here occasionally. I, I, I don't mix with the Gentiles. I don't touch any unclean thing. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, after throwing up, said that, <laughs> that publican, that extortionist, went home justified, but not the, right, the self-righteous. He said he knew he had nothing to offer. And when you come to that place, Jesus will save you, absolutely paying the full price for your redemption. Now, there's another provision made for us by the blood of Jesus that a lot of Christians are not aware. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and verse 24. It says, all true believers have come to Mount Zion to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, what does that mean? In the heavenly Mount Zion, this is spiritual now, the blood of Jesus Christ was sprinkled on the Holy of Holies. And it was in the very presence of God on our behalf. So he entered there as our forerunner, having obtained eternal redemption through his sacrifice. And he sprinkled the evidence, the blood of that redemption in the very presence of Almighty God the Father. So here's an important contrast. Early in history... Cain murdered his brother, Abel. Then he tried to disclaim responsibility, but the Lord challenged him and he said, Cain, there's no way you can conceal your guilt because the blood of your brother you shed on the earth is crying out to me for vengeance. That's in Genesis 4. Okay. In contrast, the blood of Jesus sprinkled in heaven cries out not for vengeance. He took our wrath, but for mercy. The blood is a continual plea in the very presence of God for his mercy for you and me. So once we have testified personally to the power of the blood of Jesus, you don't have to repeat those words every few minutes because the blood of Jesus is speaking on my behalf all the time in the very presence of God. 
And every time we are troubled, tempted, fearful, or anxious, remind yourself the blood of Jesus is speaking in God's presence right now on my behalf. So the blood of Jesus has made provision for redemption, forgiveness, cleansing, sanctification, and intercession on our behalf. So by testifying personally to what the Word of God says the blood of Jesus does, we can apply these provisions to our lives in the very same way. Satan is deprived of his primary weapon, guilt. God does not use that to his children. And we are enabled to live in the victory Christ accomplished a long time ago on the cross. Hey, thanks again for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and share it with a friend. Follow me by visiting the links in the description. I'm praying today that God richly blesses you this entire week.